Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. For all you elk hunters out there, Chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A 10-foot-long, 3-foot-wide coffin carved out of a single oak tree was discovered by accident in a pond at the Tetney Golf Club in Lincolnshire, United Kingdom, which is super exciting for golf. One! Inside the coffin were the remains of a 5-foot, 9-inch man and a stone axe dating back to the Bronze Age about 4,000 years ago. Now, 5-foot, 9 inches was, as far as we know, a very tall individual 4,000 years ago, and, as the stone axe tells you, Not all things were bronze in the Bronze Age. The ancient waterlogged wood of the coffin began to deteriorate immediately upon hitting the hot air of an unseasonable dry spell in Lincolnshire. So the preservation team had to move quickly to preserve it. But they couldn't because it was a golf course where nothing is allowed to move fast. Now, I'm just giving you golfers a hard time. They did save the coffin, and I understand that a lot of golfers were able to place orders for replicas on the spot. You know, it's the right demographic for coffin sales. Three! Imagine if the Bronze Age man had been wearing a pink polo shirt. I mean... Four! Alright, I'm kidding. I do appreciate the fact that because of the sport of golf, golf courses are not just parking lots or condos. So we have a lot in common. This week, we've got the EPA, WOTUS, listener email, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, well, ended with youth waterfowl season. And that just takes us right to the snort report. It's short. 
the boys shot really well. Better than a lot of adults on an opening day of shotgunning. 13 ducks, mallard, teal, lesser scop, widgeon, and snort, I believe, retrieved them all. She did great, really, really well, but we still have a lot of work to do. One thing of concern, which amazingly is not her ear health, but her mental health. That dog was so serious, so obsessed, it concerns me. Like there is no puppy left in this little year and a half old dog. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Anyway, Connor writes in. A couple months ago, I was shooting my compound bow at a nearby range. My peep sight split in two pieces and detached from the string. One of these fragments shot directly into my right eye. I'm technically not totally blind in my right eye, but the upside potential is pretty limited. I'll almost definitely need to learn to shoot left-handed. I'm trying to look at that as a fun challenge to relearn some skills that I really love and enjoy. What I'm having a little more trouble grasping is what my future with archery looks like. I don't know if I'll ever truly feel comfortable shooting a compound bow again. I've been fascinated by recurve bows since I started shooting compound, and I perceive them as being somewhat safer than an already very safe compound. I don't have any friends or family who hunt with a traditional bow. How much did you have to practice to feel comfortable hunting with a recurve? Do you think it's reasonable for someone basically starting from scratch to begin with a recurve bow? After the events of the Zumwalt Prairie Hunt, do you still hunt with your trad bow? Any other insights would be appreciated while I think about this. Ideally, I'd buy one lightly used to save some money while I test out traditional archery, but used recurves aren't as common as compounds, and finding them in left hand makes it that much harder. Okay, I'm going to answer this, all right? For those listening and not savvy to archery lingo, traditional hunting equipment in a very general sense falls into the categories of a longbow or a recurve bow. For a good longbow reference, think of like Braveheart, when all the archers angle towards the sky and somebody goes like loose or release or something and, you know, gajillion arrows fly out towards the Scottish there. A recurve is what that uh, superhero dude in the Marvel movies is shooting. Um, that's about as pop culture referency as we get here on the Weekend Review. Hawkeye. His name is Hawkeye, Cal. Anyway. In regards to a compound bow, that's like taking the technological advance of a recurve and jacking it up like uh, those overlanding vehicles you see on the road. More strings, pulleys, wheels, sights, lights, radar, USB port, etc. All that jazz makes the compound much more forgiving. An archer can draw and hold the bow and wait for the perfect shot in a way a recurve or longbow shooter cannot. As you may be thinking, one drawback to that super smooth, easy drawback of a compound is there's just a lot more stuff, and more stuff means more stuff can go wrong, as in Connor's story of a component flying off and hitting him in his eye. You'll shoot your eye out, kid, is not typically what you hear when somebody shoots a compound bow, but in this case it happened. 
The other reference here that you may not be getting is that of a hunt that I did with a guy named Chad Dotson of the Nature Conservancy on a property called the Zumwalt Prairie Preserve. You can catch that on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. During that hunt, I was hunting with a longbow. I took a shot in which, at least now, I kind of figure I misjudged the distance and made a bad hit on a bull. Low on his driver's side, humerus, which after a short jog, uh, snapped, and the bull tumbled off several cliffs until it came to a rest dead at the bottom of a wickedly steep canyon. So when Connor asks, do you still hunt with your trad bow? What he is really asking is, hey, I saw you screwed up with a traditional bow. In this case, it was a long bow. Do you still hunt with that thing you screwed up with? The short answer is no, but that is not the full answer. So stick around here. I do support you, Connor, in getting a hold of a recurve and practicing. I started shooting a recurve a ton with zero intention of hunting with one. It was addictive. It's fun to try something new. It's fun to learn. You, Connor, are still a compound bow shooter. My suggestion is shooting a recurve with the same demands of a compound shooter. Tight groups, tuned arrows, repetition, then more repetition. Shoot to get good at shooting and leave hunting out of it for the time being. In my personal archery journey, I learned with a compound, hunted with a compound, then switched to a recurve, and eventually hunted with that recurve. Then I switched to a longbow and hunted with the longbow and have decided that for me, the recurve is my happy medium. I practiced a lot with the longbow, but I never could feel as good with it or stack arrows on a target with it at any sort of distance as consistently as I could with my recurve bow. So... Do I still hunt with a traditional bow? Yes, but it's a traditional recurve bow, not a traditional longbow. As for any other advice in this journey of yours, Connor, stay away from the traditional archery crowd that says things like, you know, I shoot instinctively, but I I just can't shoot targets. Practice as you would with your compound. Get consistent. Know your ranges. Don't think about hunting until you can shoot you'll get there. It's going to be really hard, and I bet it's going to be frustrating, but you'll get there. And I'm going to try to help you out here. If anyone listening out there has a line on a used lefty recurve, write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at themeateater.com, and I'll set you up with Connor, who signs off with, happy hunting, and wear your eye protection. Next up, Crime Desk. If you recall the Kansas case of landowner Tim Nadeau, which could be pronounced Nadeau, which would be cool, like Chris Ledoux out of KC, Wyoming, but I'm not sure that that association is fitting, so we're going to stick with Nadeau. Back in November of 2011, a convicted poacher by the name of David Kent shot a buck on Nadeau property, not Tim Nadeau property, but Mother Nadeau property. Then the buck jumped the road, which is state or county property, and died on someone else's property. I point all this out because I think it is important to cover how a white-tailed deer, which in this case is the property of the people of Kansas and managed for them by the state of Kansas, can cover a lot of property boundaries while it's in the act of being shot and killed. So just think of how many property boundaries a healthy white-tailed buck 
can cover when it's following its nose during the prime of the November rut. The poacher took to bragging about this particular buck and he got pinched when he did. The son of the landowner, Tim, came forward wanting a salvage tag for the rack of the buck, which the state of Kansas had confiscated. Nadeau was denied the salvage permit and the fight was on. Eventually, Nedo outbid a representative of Bass Pro Shops at a private two-person auction, which to me sounded a little sketchy, and was able to claim ownership of the rack for $16,001. The money went into the Operation Game Thief account, which helps fund rewards and other things related to the conviction of wildlife crime. Here is where things get really interesting, and lets you know how the might of government can work. The 2014 Kansas legislature, partly in response to the Nadeau dispute, passed a law requiring landowners to be given first refusal rights of wildlife poached on their property. A key point to this legislation was that the statute was not retroactive and had no bearing on the Kent-Nadeau situation. In the Kansas House in 2015, a bill passed mandating that the state surrender the highly valued antlers to Nadeau, but it didn't receive sufficient support in the Kansas Senate, so it never went anywhere. Right now, you should be asking, the entire state house took time to vote on getting one person a deer rack? Why would that make sense? The state of Kansas had no other business that year? Like, it doesn't make sense. And finally, Representative Ken Corbett of Topeka took his time to write into a $21 billion 2021 state budget $16,001 to reimburse Neto for the whitetail rack that he paid to obtain in the auction. Kind of makes you wonder what else there is in state budgets, doesn't it? Here's a quote from the Kansas Reflector. Quote, Stars aligned, Representative Corbett said. I had a lot of help this year. It's a miracle you can make a constituent happy like this. End quote. A lot of help for a constituent that wants a whitetail rack. There you have it. Silver lining here, folks. If you are a taxpaying voting citizen, which might be undue credit here, in the state of Kansas, and have a want. Not even a need. Just, you know, something that you want. People might call it frivolous. It doesn't matter. Now is the time to call your representative. They have lots of help to get important stuff like this done. Well, my work is done here. What do you mean your work is done? You didn't do anything. (laughs) Didn't I? Which of you listening right now took a class in school about family finances 101? No one? Me neither like the importance of a will or a college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me because I don't want to be a burden on anyone ever, especially when I'm dead and I can't chip in to, you know, lift heavy things and do stuff like that. That's why I have life insurance. And I know you don't want to be a pain in the ass because you're listening to my podcast, 
So get life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cal policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions o'reilly auto parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road o'reilly auto parts offer friendly helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs if you're confused about what part you need like what wipers are going to be the best what replacement headlights are going to be the best go into o'reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing they've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock either in store or online so you never have to worry if you're in a jam do you need your windshield wipers replaced you need a brake light fixed you need some quick service they'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help the professional parts people at o'reilly auto parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in store or online stop by o'reilly auto parts today or visit us at o'reillyauto.com slash meat eater that's o'reillyauto.com slash meat eater pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service it's called the wellness company picture this okay you wake up you got a scratchy throat you're all congested you got a runny nose you got a cough whatever and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Moving on to the environmental policy desk. President Biden has a pick to head the Environmental Protection Agency, a fellow named Michael Reagan. Reagan and the EPA are looking to change how the federal government manages the nation's waterways, and the controversy is already starting to heat up. First, a quick history lesson. In 1972, Congress amended the Clean Water Act to establish federal jurisdiction over navigable waters, defined in the act as Waters of the United States, or WOTUS for short. 
At that time, many of the nation's rivers and streams were badly polluted by industrial and agricultural waste, and the Clean Water Act went a long way towards cleaning up that mess. The controversy stems from how the federal government defines navigable waters. Do navigable waters only include large rivers and lakes? What about the tributaries and wetlands connected to those larger bodies of water? If a rancher has a pond that he can float a boat on, is that pond under federal jurisdiction? What about a creek that's dry for most of the year, but when it's wet, connects to a tributary, which connects to, let's say, the Colorado River? I could go on, but you should be getting the idea. What sounds simple is actually super complicated, and the EPA's definition of this fluid term can have serious implications for farmers, ranchers, and even small, non-agricultural landowners. If the EPA determines a body of water falls under the WOTUS definition, it can place real limitations on how a landowner can use his or her property On the other hand, EPA rules can stop a polluting landowner from damaging ecosystems that expand far beyond his property lines. As I've said many, many times, a three-strand barbed wire fence does not stop pollution. The Supreme Court has weighed in three separate times to help clarify this issue. In 1985, they affirmed that wetlands count as WOTUS because they are inseparably bound up with navigable waters. In 2001, the court determined that non-navigable, isolated, intrastate ponds do not count as WOTUS, even if they are used by migratory birds. Finally, in 2006, the court determined that WOTUS must possess a significant nexus to waters that are or were navigable. What does all that mean? Good question. You probably noticed that there's still tons of wiggle room in those definitions, And the EPA has been given discretion to decide whether this or that body of water should be considered WOTUS. The Obama administration caused a big fuss in 2015 when it tried to clarify the definition of WOTUS and in the process expanded the EPA's jurisdiction. The right blasted the rule as federal overreach and farmers worried their irrigation canals and usually dry creek beds would suddenly be subject to EPA regulation. Then, in 2018, the Trump administration repealed the rule and replaced it with their own, which removed protections that Obama had instituted, including protections of many wetland ecosystems, as in the kind of wetlands that ducks need to thrive. The left, in turn, blasted Trump's move as an attack on the environment, and environmentalists worried that we'd return to pre-1972 pollution. That brings us to the present day and EPA Chief Michael Reagan. The EPA, along with the Department of the Army, announced in June their intention to redefine or re-redefine WOTUS and navigable waters. They argue that the Trump-era rule significantly reduced clean water protections, which has especially affected arid states like New Mexico and Arizona. They promise to take the opinions of all stakeholders into account and offer a WOTUS definition that both protects water resources and can be practically implemented. Important to note that the implementation part of this is extremely tricky. Both the Obama-era changes and Trump-era changes have been so locked up in litigation that it is hard to call them change. 
but it is easy to look at these changes and get an idea of who it is you are dealing with. It's anyone's guess what the new rule will say, but the controversy has already reignited, especially in the Southwest. The Houston Chronicle, for example, just published an article highlighting how the new rule might affect dry creek beds in West Texas. If you've ever been to the Southwest in the summer, you've probably seen dried out creek bottoms that don't look like they've contained water for many years. In fact, those dry creeks flow with water for portions of every year, and the EPA estimates that 118 million people rely on those beds and the lowlands that surround them. Reagan hasn't said whether those usually dry creeks would fall under federal jurisdiction, but during the Obama administration, tributaries of navigable rivers only needed a bed, a bank, and a high water mark to be considered WOTUS. No water necessary, at least not for most of the year. You can imagine how this sort of regulation might strike either side of the debate. The EPA wants to protect our nation's navigable waters, and that means preserving the waterways that connect and flow into those bodies. Landowners see a dry creek bed and wonder why the presence of that bed would require them to apply for a permit to plant crops on their own property, which is more of an example for the sake of argument than a reality. It's a slippery issue, there's no denying that, and I won't pretend to have a clear-cut answer. As with any conservation question, the rule should be based in good science and take all stakeholders into account. Water is one of our nation's most important resources. It's only getting more important, not only for us, but for the game and fish species we love to pursue. Deciding on how to protect the resource is difficult, but if you ask me, it's worth the headache to find a solution that both sides can live with. If you'd like to weigh in, the EPA has said it will give the public an opportunity to comment on their new definitions once they're released. Stay tuned for more updates. Ideally one that says, My God! The pendulum does not fall extreme right or left, but dangles there in the very uncommon middle. Now, for a roundup of bat-related news. Scientists in Costa Rica have discovered that bats who rely primarily on banana plantations for their diet are fatter and have unhealthier guts than bats in natural forest habitat. Instead of flying all over the jungle eating nectar from dozens of different plants, these bats just stay near huge plantations of bananas and mosey from one tree to another, eating to their heart's content. Kind of like if you or I drove from McDonald's to McDonald's getting a large Coke and fries at each one. Now, sometimes I'm very jealous of the job of biologists. They get to be out there among the animals learning cool stuff, but this next part, you know, I'm kind of lukewarm on. The scientists collected the feces of banana plantation bats and wild bats and measured the bacteria diversity in each sample of bat poop. The forest bats had a gut biome almost twice as diverse as those snacking on monoculture banana blossoms. You've probably heard microbiome before. The world of different bacteria living in the digestive system of a given animal. There are more of these little guys in your gut than there are in the cells in the rest of your body and the more different kinds you have, the better you can digest food. That leads to all kinds of important stuff, like how well you think, and even if you're depressed or not. 
Interestingly, organic banana plantations had bats with gut biomes much closer to the forest bats. So, next time you're loading up the kid's lunchbox, think about putting a fancy organic banana in there, and maybe you'll help keep a bat out there slim and trim. Here's a couple of quick banana facts. Americans eat almost 8 billion pounds of bananas a year, more than all the apples and oranges we eat combined. Although there are thousands of different banana varieties out there, the one we're all used to in the supermarket is called the Cavendish, which has a tough skin, stays ripe for a long time, and doesn't bruise easily. Almost all the bananas in Central America are Cavendishes, and after Cyclone Larry wiped out most of the banana plantations in Australia, 99% of the world's exported bananas are now the Cavendish kind. Cavendishes are extremely vulnerable to the fungus called Tropical Race 4, and several times outbreaks of the fungus have almost spread around the world, threatening to disrupt the entire world's banana supply. So what I'm saying here is, don't take that fruit your toddler has smeared all over its face for granted. Washington State has had a recent outbreak of white nose syndrome which is caused by the fungus Pseudohymnoascus destructans, colonizing the skin on a bat's face. It sort of looks like that bat is wearing an N95 mask made out of chalk, or doing an impression of Tony Montana sticking his face in a mountain of uh, white powder at the end of Scarface. Chico, first you get the bananas, and then you get the women. hoo Bats who get this fungus growing on their skin and wings will often leave the roost before they're done hibernating for the winter, causing them to die of dehydration or starvation. First documented in New York State in 2006, the affliction has since spread to 33 states in the U.S. and seven provinces in Canada, causing populations to crash all over the continent. This is bad news, as bats are major pollinators for all kinds of wild plants, as well as commercial crops, including the blue agave, a cactus that grows in Arizona and northern Mexico. The agave is used to make tequila, so if you want to keep drinking margaritas or ranch waters, you best take care of your bats. Bats also eat all kinds of flying insects, so if you like drinking margaritas on your back porch while not getting bitten by mosquitoes, you should take care of bats. The P. destructans fungus is killed by ultraviolet light, so scientists are trying to develop feeders that would shine UV light onto bat snouts as they come in to eat. That's not likely to eradicate white-nose syndrome entirely, but it could limit the spread, and bats are probably part of the rave crowd. Anyway, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Final stop for this episode, a study conducted in Panama has shown that female vampire bats go out on blood-hunting expeditions in social groups. Sort of like in high school when gals would go to the bathroom in pairs. But in this case, they're out picking wounds open on the back of cattle for 40 or so minutes and sucking their blood. You're, like, really pretty. Thank you. So you agree? What? You think you're really pretty. Up until now, scientists have been pretty good at identifying certain bats who paired up in the roost to groom each other. Vampire bats groom each other more than any other bat species. We know from primates that grooming is an important bonding behavior, and so it would make sense that bats, the only mammal capable of sustained and continuous flight, 
would use that social bond when out gathering food too. Now, when I say the only mammal capable of sustained and continuous flight, that's how we like differentiate between a flying squirrel, right? It's actual flight, not gliding. Anyway, in order to track individual bats, engineers with Ohio State University and the Smithsonian developed tiny proximity sensors that they attached to 50 bats, and then they installed additional sensors on nearby plants and on cattle themselves. The data from the sensor showed that although female bats don't leave the roost together, they reconnect, cooperate, in opening a wound on a cow, and then take turns feeding on the blood. The researchers also developed new recording technology to discern the noises made by the bats. And it turns out that an up-and-down song, what the study called an N-shaped feeding call, allowed the bats to find each other. Makes you wonder what Enya does for people. That does it for our Bat Roundup. Now, what other podcast is bringing you such top-shelf bat content? Rogan? This American Life? All those true crime podcasts? I don't think so. Remember, if you're in the market for some shears to bust down an antelope, maybe a clean, quiet, under-the-seat type of electric steel chainsaw, go to www.steeldealers.com and find a knowledgeable, awesome, friendly steel dealer near you. They'll get you set up with what you need and nothing more. And most importantly, last but not least, don't forget to let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal, at themeateater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more.